you know, people don't sing the hymns anymore. They're not interested in our preaching or our doctrine, but they are interested in people who do it. And there is something about the figure of the of the priest, the minister, that still resonates with people. You'll find if you wear a dog collar and you take public transport, amazingly frequently someone will come and talk to you. And they'll probably talk about the weather or the football, but before you know it, something comes up. I sometimes think the dog collar is like a lightning conductor of conscience, that people see the dog collar and it elicits, it fires their conscience in some way. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Profile podcast. If you're new to the show, then normally what you'd hear at this point is an hour-long interview with someone about their life, faith and ministry, some of their life story, how they became a Christian, family background. But we're not doing that today, for the very good and simple reason that we've already done it with our guest, the Reverend Richard Coles. If you have a look back at the archive, you'll find a full-length interview with Richard about his media career and his ministry. Today on the show, we're doing something a little bit different, and that is because this coming Monday evening on Channel 4, there's going to be a documentary aired entitled Good Grief. It's fronted by the Reverend Richard Coles, and it's come about because in December 2019, Richard lost his partner, David, to alcoholic liver disease. Being someone who writes and works in the media, that led to a book, and it's then led to this documentary on grief. How do we handle grief in society today? And so this documentary sees Richard go on a personal grief voyage, trying some unconventional activities that have helped others to live with loss. And so what you're about to hear on today's show is a conversation about grief, death, heaven, even hell. How should Christians understand these topics? And How do Christians deal with grief in the same or a different way to others who don't share our faith? As well as discussing what difference Christian faith makes to the process of grieving, we spoke about his parish ministry before he retired relatively recently and his hopes for this new documentary. And towards the end, I also got Richard's take on the Lambeth Conference. If you've been following the news this week, then you may be aware that Anglican bishops from all over the world have gathered in Canterbury for the Lambeth Conference. And they've been discussing a whole range of issues, including the environment, poverty, reconciliation and more. But of course, the issue that has really threatened to dominate the headlines and arguably already has is the one of sexuality, as the Anglican communion is divided on gay marriage and LGBT relationships. And given Richard Cole's own experience as a gay man, I wanted to get his take on the Lambeth Conference on where the Church of England and the Anglican Communion currently are on this issue of sexuality, which is threatening to divide, even to split the church. So that's what you're about to hear on today's show. Something a little bit different for you. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. You're listening to The Profile. Well, I'm joined now by the Reverend Richard Coles. Thank you so much for joining us here at Premier Richards. You've got a new documentary coming out this Monday evening on Channel 4 entitled Good Grief. And this is based really on your own experiences of grief. Do you want to start by sharing a little bit about what you went through and how that's informed the documentary? Yeah. Um, well, in uh, uh, just before Christmas in 2019, my uh, partner David died. And I found myself at the age of, uh, how old was I then? 
58, plunged into the state of widowerhood, which was not something I had anticipated. Um, as a vicar, of course, I know what that looks like. Spend a lot of time with other people going through the same thing. But I think it's obvious, but nonetheless startling for that. When it happens to you, it's nothing like what you think it is. So I tried to, one of the ways I tried to make sense of it, also lockdown happened very quickly afterwards. So I was um, a sort of lockdown of grief and also the big lockdown. So I tried to write it up, really, or write it down, I think, partly because one of the things you want to do when you lose someone is hang on to as much as you can of them. And for me, that means writing. And also, I think I just wanted to have a record of what it what it felt like. And that eventually became a book. I hadn't intended it as, as well, but it did. And then from that, I had a, a meeting with a couple of people and and the film sort of came out of that, really. So tell me... A- a bit about what you do in this in this film this documentary because i understand you try a few different ways of dealing with grief what were some of the things you attempted well of course one of the things that happens when you are bereaved is there is no shortage of uh, options you have of how you might deal with that now it's different for everybody no one's grief conforms precisely to any pattern um so i wanted to try a range of things i especially wanted to try things that weren't the sort of things i would normally try so i got up close and personal with some alpacas um uh, who were charming, uh, the, the few creatures whose breath seemed to be worse than mine. Um, I did surfing, or like an like an old overweight person trying to do surfing, um, laughter yoga, making myself laugh. Um, my favourite thing was boxing, which I didn't see coming at all. I did a bit of skydiving. And I joined a ship with um, 60 other uh, bereaved people uh, to spend some time together uh, exploring that. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. Went to Mexico, went to Honduras, did lots of things. Did any of those things help? Yes. I mean, I think they all have their merits. Some would suit uh, some more than others. Uh, the boxing thing I really enjoyed, and I think partly for me it was I didn't have a shortage of uh, people I could talk to. I didn't have – I had plenty of resources to think and speak my way through it. I actually needed something physical, I think. And perhaps that's partly to do with expressing the anger that you inevitably feel if you are, if someone is taken from you. But I think also it was simply about physicality. There's something about getting up and out of the chair and doing something and your blood pumping and and doing something that's perhaps different from what you've you've done before. That was the one that for me I liked yeah. most, I think. And also in, in your work as, as a vicar and kind of pastorally caring for people, is it true that, that for some people, if they're not able to process or work through their grief on some level, that it, it can be detrimental to themselves. I mean, is, is that is that the case? Have you seen examples of people? And it's, it's a difficult question because I'm not suggesting that, oh, you can just snap your fingers and get over it. I'm not saying that. But it, but is it is it true that when you go through something like this, that there is, an, there is a process, whatever that process looks like is, is different for different people, but there is some sort of a process that is helpful. Otherwise, you can get kind of stuck or a bit lost in in these in these feelings well i think bereavement is horrible however you do it um and there are different ways of dealing with they're probably you know every grief is bespoke and every person's way of dealing with it is bespoke too but i think i mean for me lockdown everyone said when lockdown happens oh my god it's gonna be so bad for you you know because you're on your own but actually it was kind of good for me because what i would have done would have worked and worked and worked as an avoidance strategy because actually i don't really want to have to greet bereavement every morning 
this kind of grim visitor on the doorstep you just don't want to let in but you have to let them in because they're coming in anyway they'll kick your door down if you don't open it and um you know i started thinking a lot about the victor my grandmother was the youngest of 13 born in the reign of queen victoria not all her siblings made it to adulthood she was of that generation where you know death was a regular visitor and they were they they knew that and they understood it and they recognized it and they had methods of dealing with it i think we've you know religion is very good at that stuff but i think in a sort of secular age if i can call it that a lot of death is so difficult that it's been exported to the edges of our awareness and we medicalize it uh, or we keep it as far from us as we possibly can. And then when it arrives, as it inevitably will, we're actually rather ill-prepared for it. So I began to have more respect for the Victoria. I mean, I didn't quite buy a black bombazine outfit and present, you know, morning, morning cards to people. But it, it, there's a, it's important, I think, partly for you individually, but I think it's also important for us as a society to deal with it better. And also, you know, the black armband and the morning clothes do tell people what they need to know, that this is a person from whom you might not expect the normal levels of courtesy and patience and uh, and bonhomie, because that goes when grief comes along. You know? Yes. And as you, as you say, there are other cultures and religions where there is there is a sort of a set pattern there's there's a period of this many days of mourning and you might dress differently for those many days and so the, the society the community knows we don't really have that equivalent in the same way in british culture at the moment do we i mean aside from maybe the day of the funeral there's not a sense of the whole community gathering around someone and there being a set kind of ritual is there yeah i was in scotland recently in the west of scotland in tarbot and there was a funeral there in the heart of traditional presbyterian scotland and the whole town closed for it and there were it was elaborately ritualized people came there was a whole ritual about who bore the coffin who lowered the coffin it's a very much it still belongs to the community in a more traditional place like that when i was a kid i remember people would draw the curtains i think on the day of a funeral if it was a neighbor's funeral but no i mean the days policemen used to salute at a hearse i'm not sure that always happens now traffic would stop people would cross themselves if that was their custom i think we've lost we've lost that really and with it we lose really important resources because I mean obviously we're all going to die but also if you're lucky enough to spend your life with someone and you love them and they love you the chances are 50 50 roughly that you're going to be bereaved and it's worth thinking about that I think having some sense about what you might do there, there was some I think I really loved one of my favorite that we went to Honduras uh, well to the island of Ratan which is off the coast of Honduras and in traditional culture there they marked the anniversary of a death with this kind of huge drumming and dancing thing, which we went to see, which was kind of wonderful. And I remember saying to the guy, our interpreter, this is great, they're celebrating. And he said, no, we're sad. And it made me realize there's more than one way of being sad, the sort of Victorian solemnity that we do, black-plumed horses and all that, top-hatted undertakers and vicars being solemn. You know, there are other ways of, of doing it, but it's important that you have a way of doing it. And what's the difference that, Christian faith makes when it comes to grieving? I think that's an interesting one because I think people thought because I am a Christian, people thought that would mitigate the loss in some way. And of course it doesn't. What you really want is not uh, kind of the consolation of heaven. What you actually want is Lazarus to emerge from the tomb. Okay. You want the dead person to walk in the door and be living again. And it, doesn't happen so that's tough there's no way around that 
But I do think that the place to look for me was the cross, actually, and to see everything that deprives us, everything that diminishes us, everything that hurts and harms us, reckoned once and for all on the cross. And beyond that, a new life awaits, transformation, hope, and a dawn. And to try to live in anticipation of that. But it doesn't sort of get out of jail free card. No. And sometimes it is treated as such, or I can think of examples where those who are grieving are perhaps rushed and urged towards, but it's okay, they're in a better place. Just, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but, but there is a timing issue there, isn't there? You know, a few hours or a few days after losing someone, you probably don't want to hear that. But, but is, there, is there a place for that conversation perhaps later on where a person might be more willing to reflect on on the on the kind of hope that yeah death is not the end and they are in a better place does that give some level of, of hope yeah i mean again it's different for different people those who are i mean i i someone said to me because david's death was particularly tragic um did it affect your faith and the answer is no not at all i didn't touch it because my faith is not dependent on me getting a lucky break if you see what i mean uh, i doubted just about everything else but I, but i didn't doubt that but in terms of the consolation that offers, I've always found with faith, it's not really particularly consoling. It's much more about challenge. And I think it really spoke to me about the challenge of that moment, how I was going to get through the day, actually put on a game face and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Others I know have had a very lively sense of the departed loved one having just gone into the next room, as the famous and very much often quoted poem has it. Um, and I think you're right, sometimes... You see it in a different way. And I think one of the, it's a common mistake, I think, that people make with funerals, and I only say this because I've done lots of them, is they want it to be a celebration of the life because actually the fact of the death is so awful and so appalling, it's unthinkable. So they will, everyone will turn up wearing bright colours and they want it all to be lovely, but actually it is deeply sad. What's happened is really, really bad. And that has to be acknowledged and faced in one way or another. And I sometimes think it's rushing them into heaven without respecting quite what the people are you know as we're speaking um archie battersby's life is ending i think and it's very interesting the debate we've had around that as a as a culture you know the parents who wish to do everything to prolong his life in the hope that it will be renewed in this world medics who make decisions based on their discipline and they come to a different view and then the rest of us who look on and don't know where we are in relation to all that um these are difficult and deeply searching and profoundly um, challenging circumstances to find ourselves in, but we do find ourselves in them. Hasn't death been called the last taboo? You know, this kind of idea that we'll kind of talk about you know, everything, um, including our sex lives, you know, in, in, the, in the printed media, but the idea of a kind of national conversation about death is, uh, is still pretty awkward for most people. Yeah, no, I wonder if that changed a bit in the pandemic, because partly because lots of people, you know, did find bereavement came when they weren't perhaps expecting it but also I think the mood abroad was one in which we had to entertain the reality that there was something on the horizon which had the potential to kill us and the people around us and that inevitably uh, leads to questions that you might not otherwise have or not have then um, but we are I mean I think it's not I think it's a feature of secularism really and I sometimes get to fight with friends about this but I think one of the hallmarks of secularism is it prides itself on not needing 
the comforting mythologies of religion or faith, or whatever, to face the tough realities of the world. My experience is exactly the other way around. It's the secular world which can't even bring itself to say the word death and talks about people having passed away and that, you know, produces this vocabulary of euphemism and exports it to beyond our daily experience, um, which is interesting. Coming back to, to heaven, how do you kind of pastorally, if, if someone perhaps is arranging a funeral and they, they say to you, Richards, where is my loved one now? Or what Do you have a an answer, a, a response to, to people who have faced that question in their lives? Try not to give answers because I try to <clears throat> get alongside them in the question, if you see what I mean. And if I do, if people want to know that, I would say something pretty open, I think, which is that I don't think anything good is ever lost. And I don't think this is all there is. And if you put those two together, then it seems to me that the promise that Jesus made in to us in this world is fulfilled in the next world. And I'd live by that. And if that works for me, it would maybe work for others. I'd love to have a more elaborate version of heaven. But <clears throat> I mean, part of me would love to have, you know, to die and to see David coming towards me with all our dogs bounding through the meadows of Elysium. But um, I'm much more persuaded now by, I was looking at the other day at the Divine Comedy, there's Botticelli, some illustrations of Divine Comedy, 15th century. And when the pilgrim gets to heaven, it just sort of becomes geometry, circles, uh, the most lightly visualised abstractions, if I could put it that way. And maybe as I get older, I think that's more helpful to me but again, different for everyone. Maybe it's a question you you don't often think about or wrestle with, but you know, where, where is David now? You know, what's what's your sort of well, I think the fascinating and the compelling thing for me is that David and everything good in David endures in his individual reality. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? For most people, individual reality disappears, the people who don't have a belief in an afterlife, disappears at the point of death you know, as brain activity ceases, then that's all there is. And once that's gone, there is no, there's a body left, but everything about that person, the character, the personality, the individuation disappears apart from in a material sense. Well, my belief is that that endures, but it's beyond suffering and pain and separation. And it endures in the eternal, unfading delight of God. And I think we know enough in this life of what that might be to keep us interested. And all of that is a very uplifting and, and positive portrayal, rightly, uh, and speaks to the hope that we have as Christians, as you say, that death is not the end. I, I guess what's tricky is that when you read Jesus, like he, he talks about some stuff after death that doesn't look so pleasant either. You know, he talks about the fires of hell. I mean, what, oh, what, yeah. what, what are we to do with that as modern modern Christians? Because... If you just take, if you just look at Jesus' words, it's not all, it's not all kind of pearly gates and everything's gonna be okay. It's kind of this dire warning that if you don't, if you don't sort sort yourself out, you're gonna be heading somewhere not very pleasant yeah. after death. Well, I mean, I think as as modern Christians, our relation to that is no different from ancient Christians. That we are, as I said, I think that everything that is good in someone endures. Uh, I'd like to think that when push comes to shove and the offer is made. We would all accept it, twixt the stirrup and the ground, he mercy sought and mercy found. I mean, I have no, the concept of hell is not one I struggle with, 
whether anyone's in it or not that's the the difficult one i'm very reluctant to assign people their place in the hereafter i think that's god's business and the relationship we have with god in god's mercy and wisdom and judgment is not for others to trespass on i guess i, I wanted to ask you about one one scripture in particular which which came to my mind when i was thinking about grief because it's often quoted uh which is the one in one thessalonians where paul talks about i don't want you to grieve like the rest who have no hope which which you know a lot of christians have interpreted to mean that that as christians yes we grieve but we but there is a hope as well do you have any thoughts on that on that idea of what of what that means you know has that first meant anything to you in in as you've processed grief yourself yeah absolutely uh, i was i was i trained for the priesthood at murfield anglican monastic community when one of the monks dies couple did while i was there their funerals are held and the custom there is to sing the russian kontakion and it's a lovely piece i don't know if you know it but uh, just think of beardy guys with deep voices singing <laughs> in clouds of incense it's that sort of a thing but in english it finishes and weeping o'er the grave we make our song Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. We weep o'er the grave because we've lost someone to it, but we make our song. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. I think that's that's says it for me. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. Well, as I say, the documentary is airing this coming Monday evening, 10 o'clock on Channel 4, and it's entitled Good Grief. And uh, a welcome opportunity, perhaps, to, on national television, talk about a subject which is, people are sometimes a little bit reluctant to go there. And also for you as a, as a Christian, presumably, to, to bring faith into it. How much does faith feature in the documentary? Well, it's, it's absolutely everything I do. So, I mean, I don't talk about it explicitly. I talk to a couple of people. There was one of my fellow widows on the cruise was a Methodist minister from Georgia. And we talked a bit about that. Interestingly, of course, the Americans, most of them were people of faith. So it was it was really interesting being around people grieving, all of whom pretty much, not everyone, um, shared a faith. That's not such a common experience in my world because I live like everybody else in a much more secular world than that. So that was that was kind of interesting. I also, I don't want, if I'm talking to people who are bereaved, who are knocked out by it, I really don't want them to feel for a second that I'm there with a hard sell, right? Mm. So I've always liked that saying of St. Francis that we must always preach, but we need not always use words. Mm. So I think my job then is to come alongside people and listen sympathetically and engage with them and share my own stuff, really. Yeah. And then I think I hope to open a door, draw back a curtain, and if the world begins to look a bit different, then we'll pick that up. 
on that point of the world looking different, if it's not too grand a question, like, do, do you have any kind of hopes for a documentary like this? Are you are you hoping it has a an impact, if not culturally, at least on on people individually? What would be the kind of hope for making a piece of television like this? Well, I mean, the first thing I want is for people to encourage people to get together. So if you are grief stricken, if you want to and if you can, to use an overused expression, reach out. But it's actually an apt one, I think, because you do need to reach out. You'll find other people who will who've been through that same thing. Sharing that, I think, is really important. I think. I think also a lot of the reason why I do what I do now is because years ago, without me quite realizing what was going on, somebody else made it look possible. And I think if you can just, you know, as a, as a Christian with an opportunity to stand in a more mainstream place than most others, I want to make it look possible. I'm very conscious that I might make it look impossible, my bad. But if I can just make it look possible, then that would be good, I think. And I'm very conscious that lots of people, you know, we live in a world where lots of people are very alienated from the church and very hostile to Christianity. And I sometimes think that if we are too explicit, not explicit is the wrong word, because that implies that we won't want to be plain about what we're doing. But if we're kind of too in your face, it alienates people. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. I'd rather get alongside people and walk with them a bit of the way and see if that's a fruitful experience. And that's a must be a very very difficult task because, as you say, if I'm not saying you would, but you know, if you were to go on Channel Four and just start delivering a sermon about, um, you know, come to Jesus, then you you wouldn't get a TV gig and you wouldn't no. have the opportunity like this. Um, I wouldn't want to do that anyway. You wouldn't want to do that anyway. But on the flip side, you also wouldn't want to completely hide who you are, hide your Christian faith in order to get more TV gigs, because actually in a secular world, Richard, we do a little bit less of the God stuff, and that wouldn't be fair either. So it puts you in arguably a, a slightly difficult position where you might get flack from both sides. You might get flack from Christians saying, hey, be a bit yeah. more upfront. You might get flack from the secular world, but oh, he's doing, you know, the grief stuff was interesting. But what's, what's all this religious stuff about? Well, you do get flat from everybody, but you, you, you cannot, you know this, you can't put your head over the parapet without people throwing things at you. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. And also I get things really wrong sometimes. And when I do, I deserve to be held to account for it. And I want to be held to account for it, even if it doesn't feel like it at the time. I mean, a lot of it, I think the dog collar's done a lot of heavy lifting for me because I don't have to say anything. Yes. I just, it's on. And then people know who I am and they might have all sorts of, ideas about what that means and some of those ideas might be close to mine and some not but at least they know and it's a curious thing i've found so with the, with the dog collar is that you know people don't you know people don't sing the hymns anymore they're not interested in our preaching or our doctrine some are but not many but they are interested in people who do it and there is something about the figure of the of the priest the minister the confessor the pastor that still resonates with people. You'll find if you wear a dog collar and you take public transport, amazingly frequently, someone will come and talk to you. And they'll probably talk about the weather or the football or whatever it might be. But before you know it, something comes up. And I think it's, I sometimes think the dog collar is like a lightning conductor of conscience, that people see the dog collar and it elicits, it fires their conscience in some way. Fascinating. Well, you've been very generous with your time. And um, before we go, I, I did want to just mention the one of the big news stories of, of the week, certainly for Christians and, and 
partly for the rest of the watching world has been the Lambeth conference, um, which is going on right now. And uh, the issue that of course has um, threatened to, if not is dominating is, is one of sexuality. Again, we have a situation now where you have most churches in the global South taking a traditional view, which means they would say they oppose same sex marriage, same sex relationships on biblical grounds. But then you have, of course, number of churches in UK and North America who are saying we have the opposite view. Can this be resolved? Um, or is this now a question of prolonging the inevitable of there's going to have to be a split because this issue has, I mean, you would have been asked about this issue literally countless times. Uh, we last did an interview, I think maybe four or five years ago, and I could have asked you pretty much the exact same question then. It, it, the issue comes up and up again and again, yeah. two polarised sides. What's, what's going to happen next? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's been interesting just how much has happened in the course of the past week or two, really. I remember I, I was in Oban, up in the west of Scotland, and I and I had tea with the Bishop of Argyll and the Isles, and it's such a very parsonical thing to do, but I did. And he was just packing his bags to go to Lambeth. He said, "We've had these documents called these things called calls." I thought no more about it until I got back and realised what was you know that I don't want to be too technical, but Resolution One Ten, which was the um, the product of the nineteen ninety eight Lambeth Conference, was asked to be reaffirmed. Now there are all sorts of questions about that. What what is the status of that one? The Lambeth Communion, what is it? I'm sorry, the Anglican Communion, the Lambeth Conference. What is the status of the resolutions, calls, whatever it might be they produce? Well, the answer is they are not juridical measures. They are advisory. They are well, So there's all that aspect. Um, it does very often, I don't know, I used to feel that we were sort of making progress in the direction that I would like to see us make progress. I stopped really thinking that a couple of years ago, and now I think if it's not in reverse, it's certainly stalled. And part of me just thinks, well, I'm not really part. I'm not. I'm not. I. I am no longer a dog in this fight. I'm not going to. I. You know. I might have my own view. That hasn't substantially changed, and I'll stick with that. Thanks very much. I think the question for me now is not can it be resolved. But can we stick together? I think the latest, I saw the letter from the Archbishop of Canterbury to the bishops, I think it was published yesterday. And I think the latest way in which it acknowledges the reality of the situation, we are divided about this. We're all in the same room. Some people have decided they don't want to receive communion alongside others, but we are nonetheless all in the same room. And I sometimes think what we need to remember is that our communion is fractured, but we share baptism. And I sometimes think maybe it's not an answer, but maybe something we might find some renewal in is remembering that we are that we share a baptism. Communion might be difficult, but baptism is a fact, right? So maybe we need to think more about that. And it all depends on how patient or impatient I feel with the topic. You know, I started in the well, long before I was a Christian when I was sixteen in the sort of battle for gay rights and equality for gay people. And I felt that that was a battle that was substantially won in the world I was in, in the 80s, you know, huge shift in public attitudes. To find myself having those battles now at the age of 60 is very wearisome, really. But, you know, there are worse things than wearisome arguments. I dare say I've, I've noticed this, and I, I, I forgive me if, if I'm presumptuous here, but in the time that I've um, spoken to you and read some things you've said, I've... I've, no, I've detected perhaps a slight movement in the sense of 
some of your recent comments in the media have been a little bit more forthright, if I can put it that way, than they might have been five or 10 years ago. And yeah. I wouldn't call it impatience, but I, I understand, right, that as time goes on, you just think that this is this is what I think. Because when we last spoke, I was I was struck by actually how accommodating you were towards other Christians who disagree. And I'm not saying you're not accommodating anymore, but but has there been a slight change there in terms of just as time has gone on? I've, you know, I've got a bit fed up, frankly, with with the church of which I'm a part and, yeah. and a bit frustrated, I, maybe. Well, two things happened. One was the sense that what I felt was progress all of a sudden stalled and felt that. And I had a couple of things happen in my pastoral ministry, which made me angry, actually. Um, and then I retired. And there's something about stepping down from an, a, in an official representative role that perhaps made me speak a bit more freely. And partly also there is something, I think the thing that distresses me actually is not so much that people struggle with this. Of course, I'm aware of scripture. I'm aware of the long tradition of the church. Of course, it's kind of hugely problematic to begin to entertain the kind of things that I want to see and others. What I find is, is the way we are so, as I mean, as a gay person, we seem to be talked about and not to. And the way the official uh, kind of commentary seems to kind of suppose this as a problem on the outside that's kind of threatening uh, the integrity of what we do, whereas actually we are kind of thinking of ourselves on the inside, really. We're in the room, and it'd be nice to be spoken to by people as if we are actually in the room. And I think that that sense of a sort of the realisation that people don't think you are alike in dignity with them. That's the thing that's hard. And in fact, it's not just hard, it's intolerable, I find. And I, I just don't want to do it anymore. As you mentioned, you're you're retired. And so what 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 are your feelings on where you should go next? Because Me. this is some well, this is something you could spend a lot of time talking about and campaigning on. Uh, it's also something you could say, I'm retired, I'm done, I'm gonna do other things. Like have you Yeah, have I mean I that? don't I, I don't want to get any more involved with it than I already am. I find myself drawn into it because obviously it's a matter that's sort of important to me. But I, I, I've got other things I want to do more now. And I'm enjoying... I've always liked the saying of Emily Dickinson, one of my favourite poets, and she wrote, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. I've recently started writing fiction, and I find that has been... has offered me... Uh, opportunities that I perhaps didn't have before in a non-fiction world. One last question on this, and, and that is really a question that is being posed by Christians I speak to who, who will say something on the lines of, look, I, I want to affirm gay relationships. Um, that's, that's my natural inclination, if I put it that way. But, but these, these Christians tell me, they say, look, when I, when I read scripture, I just I can't get past every mention of homosexuality being mentioned in a negative context and a sinful context. And that doesn't stop me loving my, my gay family or my gay friends. But, but when it comes to marriage, I just feel like I have to submit to scripture and I, I can't see how God allows it. And that's the kind of dilemma that I think a lot of people are facing. What would be your response to someone who, who finds themselves in that position of almost of wanting to be affirming, but, but feeling bound by what they feel scripture says? Well, I think that's agonising. And I think I'm, I'm talking to a friend of mine who's a conservative evangelical who would be exactly that. 
sort of person. I remember we've known each other for a long time. I said to him once, has there anything I have said in the arguments that we've had that would make you shift? And he said, no. And I, and I said, is any, would anything make you shift? And he said, yeah, it's my kid saying, dad, why are you homophobic? And that is an agony. And I, you know, and I sympathize. I think the, 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 the issue for me is that what we really disagree about in that is not, it's, it's actually about the authority of the Bible and how we understand the authority of the Bible. Now, if you come from um, a sort of hard Reformation, conservative evangelical background, well, that come, what comes with that is a certain way of understanding and reading the Bible. I come from liberal, Church of England, liberal scholarly circles on that one. And sometimes I get irritated when people on the other side of the argument think that they own the Bible, that their way of doing scripture is the only way of doing scripture. And actually it isn't. And in all sorts of ways, I would also say, I mean, I think about this a lot. In the early church, up until the Middle Ages, usury was absolutely and everywhere condemned by scripture, by the tradition, by the magisterium of the church. And then it wasn't. And it wasn't, I think, because it became necessary and expedient for the churches to accept the reality of banking, because our economic history and the development of Europe and so forth uh, required it. And actually what that led to, interestingly, was the Reformation. Aha, irony. Um, I remember talking about this to someone, and I said, well, what do you make of that, a biblical scholar? And he said, well, it's not a first order issue. And marriage is. And I said, well, it's not a first order issue now, but I think it was then. So there is, I think, precedence for the church to shift on these matters. Whether that can is a useful parallel or not, I don't know. But there is also, in terms of the way the Church of England behaves, for example, the option to remarry divorced people is there for uh, ministers of the Church of England should they choose to exercise it. That's fine. That's understood. No one's going to make you do it. But if you want to do it and criteria are satisfied, then you may. And maybe that offers us a model for how we might proceed with this if we proceed in the direction I'd like to see it go. I don't know. Interesting to see if Lambeth, at the end of the week, if they, if there's anything in those, I mean, if there's anything in those deliberations which suggests that that might be an option. If it isn't an option, then LLF, Living in Love and Faith, the shared conversations, all that stuff, which I've been involved in, I was in shared conversations, will come to naught, I think. And then, I don't know, maybe then things fall apart. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.